Well, it gives me great joy to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We have made it to chapter 4. So thankful to the Lord for this amazing epistle and the things that we have been learning. And we turn a key today to start a new section of our study in the book of Ephesians. And I trust it will be an encouragement to you. The title for today is The Consequent Christian Life. You could say the corresponding Christian life. In other words, our lives have a consequent result from what we know, and they correspond, our lives correspond indeed to what we know. We'll be looking only at the first verse and a full confession. Uh, there was a one point yesterday morning that I, uh, I, I thought about only doing the first word, but we're going to do the first verse because I knew you would mock me, and I did not want to endure that. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All of us know what it's like to be talked about especially when we're talked about negatively. Well, you may not know this, but you were spoken of in a very condescending negative way in 1928 by a man who didn't know you and you didn't know him, but his name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. He published an essay in Harper's Magazine called What's Wrong with Preaching? And he had actually you in mind in much of what he said in that article. He was a self-acclaimed leader of liberalism, and he was calling for preaching that was more relevant than expository preaching or just preaching through the Bible, verse by verse. This is what he said, quote, Many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from a particular scripture, and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what that passage means, they spend their half an hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? He asks this, who seriously supposes that as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with what Moses or Isaiah or Paul or John meant in those special verses or came to church deeply concerned about it? Nobody else who talks to the public, so assumes that the vital interests of people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago, end quote. He didn't have a very high estimation of people who want to go to church to hear the Bible explained. And he certainly didn't have a very high estimation of preachers who would explain it. A lot of assumptions in Fosdick's paragraph. 
He held that you came to church this morning with little to no concern for what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. That was his spoken articulation. He also said that held that you do not care what the authors of the Bible communicated in their writings. He held that it is wrong for me as a preacher or you as a congregation to believe that our, quote, vital interests are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago, end quote. And he held that studying the Bible and what it says and then finding a practical application from such is completely misguided. Studying theology, studying doctrine, studying the Bible verse by verse, finding out that what God intends for us to know and believe and how we are to act in response is the heartbeat of every biblical writer. Know, learn, and respond. Well, today, as I said, marks a very important and a special moment in our study of the book of Ephesians. We've come to an important waypoint, and it's the halfway point. In terms of volume, we're right in the middle of the book. We're also at a pivotal point in terms of emphasis. A lot has been made of this, that the first three chapters are doctrine and the last three chapters are, are practical application. And that's true. Most of the imperatives, the commands are in the last three chapters. Most of the indicatives, the statements of theology are in the first three chapters. But as I, I trust you've seen over the last, it's been 40 sermons to get to this point in, in chapters one to three, is that doctrine is immensely practical has implications by understanding what God did and what God says. But also, as we study these next three chapters, everything that God asks us to do and commands us to do and be is all rooted in the theology of the first three. You cannot separate the two. For three chapters, we've looked at what God has done for us in the gospel. Now we're going to study what God will do in and through us because of the gospel. And I just, want, I just want to encourage you to buckle your seatbelts in the next three chapters. I mean, this is an absolute, brilliantly written manual on how to live as a Christian. Let me give you a very high altitude, cursory, summary flyover of what we're going to be studying we're going to first look at our hearts, our character, how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do so that unity is held up in the body. Look, look at the next verse. With all humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and tolerance, finding love. I mean, character right out of the bat. Unity through the first 16 verses with other believers that are distinctly different than us. Then he moves into what it means to live distinctively different than an unbeliever also distinctively different than we used to live as an unbeliever. He anchors that in chapter four with, you did not learn Christ in this way, that Jesus will be the answer not only to our theological interests, even curiosities, but he is the means and the reason for our sanctification and our obedience. We're gonna learn in uh, chapter four, verse 22, the lust, we're gonna talk about the lusts of deceit, that all of your strong desires that lead you to sin are liars, and every time you sin, you've taught yourself to believe the lie. 
We're going to look at pursuing doctrinal depth and understanding, what it means to enjoy and employ our spiritual gifts in ourselves, in each other, understanding how to communicate better, as well as how to use communication to resolve conflicts. We'll learn how to use our language, our tongues for others' benefits and build them up and not tear them down. How to be kind and forgiving each other. That's just chapter four. (laughs) Chapter five, we'll learn how to see our obedience as imitating God, loving others, fighting internal sin, fighting external sin, having a pattern for doing that and a pathway and a plan for it, becoming spiritually stable, how to walk with the Spirit of God, how to be controlled by His Spirit, how to sing with an engaged, worshipful heart, how to become a more faithful wife, how to become a more faithful husband, how to become a better child to your parents and a better parent to your children, how to be a better boss to your employees and how to be a better employee to your boss, how to appropriately fight the devil how to appropriately fight his army, how to pray more effectively and efficiently. So, Mr. Fosdick, yes, we actually do believe, quote, that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. So what's the compass for your life? Why do you live the way you do. What do you want to be when you grow up spiritually? What's your map? Where are you going? What are your goals for your Christian life? May I just suggest that Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are a paint-by-numbers, easy map to follow for glorifying God becoming more holy, and watch this, enjoying the gospel in its multitude of dimensions. So the next three chapters are a sure and steady plot for the narrative of the rest of your life if you will receive it. Looking how we, looking to how we glorify God through His Son, the Lord Jesus, and His presence, because He's alive, makes a difference day in and day out. So for our study today, we're going to look at just the first verse of the last half of this book of Ephesians. And I want to say something that might seem a little bit overstated. I know that, you know, I've heard preachers can be evangelistic. They tend to overstate things, and I I can certainly fall into that category. But I want to make a statement that I hope I can prove to you, and that is this. Ephesians 4.1 may be the most succinct summary of the Christian life in the New Testament. That's a big claim. But listen to it again. Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, our salvation, with which we have been called. Let's break that down a little bit so that we can uh, kind of put it in our hearts and get our hands around it and find two expectations for living a consequent Christian life. Two expectations for living a consequent life. Christian life. Now, the reason it's consequent, well, you could also say a corresponding. Consequent means our doctrine actually impacts our living and our thinking and our decision making. It corresponds, what we do in our life corresponds to what we believe in the gospel. Those are connected. 
at the deepest level. So two expectations that Paul gives for living a consequent, a connected, a corresponding, a commensurate Christian life. First is in the first half of verse 1. A life that responds to exhortation. A life that responds to exhortation. We live in a world that hates authority, that hates to be told what to do. May, may, may I just suggest humbly that if you don't like being told what to do, you might not like the next four, the next uh, three chapters. Because there's a lot of do this, be this, don't do that, and stop being the other. Paul says, therefore, I. Stop with the word there for a moment. It's the first word of the last half of the book. It's a little Greek word, un. Three letters in the Greek. So, so powerful. We translate it, therefore. You can translate un as consequently. Based on what I've just said for three chapters, as a consequence, consequently, correspondingly, I implore you. It's a similar line of thinking that he employed in Romans 12.1. After 11 chapters of doctrine, Paul says to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, same word, un, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God as your spiritual service of worship. So let's remember where we are. Three chapters of discussing and describing the theology and doctrine of what it means to be a Christian, an adopted son or daughter by God the Father. We were dead and now we're alive. We were enemies with those unlike us. Now we're brothers and sisters. We've been given grace to come into the kingdom and grace to live day by day, grace to be justified and grace to be sanctified. And now he says, so what? So what? What are the implications and applications of being a blood-bought child of the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, the Ephesians are now to do something with what Paul has taught them to believe. Belief, belief separated from living is a problem, just as trying to live separated from doctrine or belief is a problem. And that's the hinge that we're at in chapter 4, verse 1. I like the way Kent Hughes talks about this shift from theology to practice. It's really good. He says, this shift can be expressed in many ways, from doctrine to duty. I like that. From creed to conduct. I like that. From the Christian's wealth to the Christian's walk. I like that. From exposition to exhortation, from the indicative to the imperative, from high society to a high life. Those are all great ways to say, live like you believe. Why is this so important? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually talks about a, a tendency that every person can have and, and maybe two categories that you can find yourself either leaning toward one or toward the other. He says, some people are naturally intellectual. They've been given minds by God above average. Perhaps they enjoy reading and studying and reasoning and handling truths and doctrines. Their particular danger is to spend all of their time with doctrine and to stop 
add doctrine. Pretty heady. There's another whose danger is to stop with experience only. He talks about these folks uh, are always looking for a better set of feelings, better set of experiences, and they do not see the value of spending the time studying the theology behind their belief system that makes up their Christianity. Well, this little therefore should solve these two extremes. We've studied this in the, last, in the past few weeks. He identifies himself. Therefore, I, and the, the verb is I urge you, but he gives a little, a positive and a description of who he is. I, the prisoner of the Lord. We looked at that in detail, but let me remind you, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. This is not the second Roman imprisonment, which he will be uh, in the Mamertine prison down in a, uh, a, a dungeon. Uh, this he's under house arrest, probably under sword point by a Roman guard. So when he describes the believer's armor in chapter six, he's probably looking at a soldier who has this armor. He reminds his readers that he has been stripped of his freedoms, but not of his ability or of his willingness to be faithful to Christ. I think this is so important. Paul says, I am a prisoner, not of Nero, not of Rome. Look at the text. I'm a prisoner of the curious, the Lord, the master. He is the one, as we've said over and over, he looked through the circumstances of his life and saw the provident hand, providential hand of God in the glove of his circumstances, and he was okay. It's also interesting that there's a, an important lesson here with our souls that love freedom in the country which God has blessed us to live in. In a country where many believers turn up the volume on freedom, freedom, freedom. Paul's message here is that his loss of civic freedom had nothing, nothing to do with hindering him from faithfully serving, loving, and obeying Christ. He had lost all of his freedom, and it didn't hinder him from serving the Lord. Even a step further, the language that Paul employs is of a slave to a Lord here in, in this word kurios and in elsewhere he talks about us being slaves of Christ. Willing submission to our Lord, giving our freedom up to him. I just think it's interesting that Paul never argued for civil liberty and freedom as a citizen, but he argued for submission and slavery to the good and gracious Lord Jesus. Paul had, by this point in his life, developed the spiritual maturity to see that what appears bad isn't always bad. To see through his trials to find the providence of God at work. He was the prisoner of the Lord and was happy to be there. Then he says his injunction, I implore you. See that little word implore? It's literally implore you too. It's a word that we've looked at many times before in our studies of John, our study of other passages. It's para alongside kaleo or call. Para kaleo or 
paraclete in, in John where, uh, 14, 15, and 16, where the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. He uses that word. This is a strong command, but it's not without him being involved with us or for us. I come alongside you. I beseech you. I urge you. I beg you. I encourage you. Not a suggestion, by the way. It's a command accompanied by his care, accompanied by his instruction, and accompanied by his identification. Think about that. Paul did not command people to do something he was not also willing to do. So when he says, I urge you or I implore you, he's saying, I'm coming alongside you. We're doing this together. Great word. A life that responds to command to exhortation. Paul says, I'm telling you to do something. I'm also telling you to do that because my own obedience has landed me in prison. I'm willing to take the consequences of obedience. I just wonder, are we so willing to respond to being exhorted, being implored? First expectation then for living a consequent Christian life is to obey, a life that responds to exhortation. Secondly, though, and this is the heart of the verse, it's to live a life that corresponds, as we've said, to doctrine. It responds to obedience and it corresponds to belief, to doctrine. I urge you, I implore you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Again, going back to the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Listen, this is just incredible. If we but knew what these words mean, most of our problems would immediately be solved. What a statement. He's going to come back to this idea of walking. Actually, he's already told us not to walk according to the course of this world. That's the way we used to walk. In 4.17, he'll say, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in their futility of mind. Walk differently than you used to walk. Ephesians 5.2, that you walk in love just as Christ also loved you. What does this mean? We're going to come back to the word walk in a minute, but it's, it's, it's wedded to this idea of worthy. Walk worthy. And you need to kind of understand what worthy is so you understand what walking means. Worthy is an interesting Greek word, axios. It means equal weight. And it was most often used of scales. Now, they, in the scales in the ancient Near East where you would measure one thing against the other, you've seen these before, you had a, a post that was a fulcrum, and on each side you had dishes or saucers that you would put different items, and you would weigh one against the other to see which was more weightier, more valuable. The term axios means perfect balance. Both sides weigh the same. You say both sides of what? Your life and your doctrine. What you believe and your convictions in your life. They are commensurate with each other. The idea of axios also, interesting, is that of color matching. 
I don't think it should surprise anyone that they had a sense of fashion in the ancient Near East, just like we do. And if someone wore a certain article of clothing that didn't match another part, it was to be out of axios, out of balance. It clashed. Applied here, our lives should not clash with our testimony, our doctrine, our confession. They should be hand in glove with each other. When we put on our clothes, we're usually mindful of the color combination we're arranging. We are to avoid colors that clash. And when we believe the good news of the theology of our Bibles, we are to have lives that don't clash against what we say we believe. Never a clash between our confession of faith and our practice of living. You say, well, how does that work out? Now let's go back a word to walk, walk worthy. Um, it's one of the favorite New Testament synonyms uh, and a shorthand for living. Walk means live. The word translated worthy, axios, works in concert with walking. Live in balance, doctrine and life. Bring equilibrium with your living and your believing. He's calling us as believers to live a life worthy of our calling. I believe this is our effectual calling that God calls. Romans 8, he calls and we answer by believing the gospel. In, chapter, in Colossians 1, chapter, 10, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote that we are to live a life worthy of the Lord himself. Think about that. Our life on one saucer, on the other side of the fulcrum, Christ, we're supposed to live in equilibrium with him? That's exactly what Paul says. We're expected to live under the lordship of Christ. Let me say it again. This may qualify as the most succinct summary of Christian living in the New Testament. It's the anchor point of Christianity. Now let's step back for a minute and think about walking. I don't think this is a surprise surprise to anyone, but um, the transportation revolution is recent recent in history. These people people got around very simply by by, by walking. They walked everywhere. Walking was how they ambulated. That's how they got from one place to another. And it made a big difference. Walking is a particular thing Concerning curiosity to me right now, my, my grandson Charlie is just starting to walk and I keep getting videos of him and see him on FaceTime and he, he's walking and um, he's, let's just say he's learning to walk. Um, and uh, there's lots of stumbling, there's lots of falling, there's lots of tumbling, but he's learning to get around by walking. You have to learn to walk Walking became a synonym for living, especially with the Lord. Just listen to these verses. I'm going to take you on a very fast tour, and it's worth the tour. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Deuteronomy 5.33, you shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, there's the synonym for it, that you may live and that it may be well with you. You prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You will walk in the way of the Lord, live in the way of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Psalm 15, 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's the one the Lord invites to worship. You know this very well. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. We live by faith. We don't live by our, our visual at this point. Ephesians 2, 2. We study this. Speaking of our, the days when we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked lived according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 4.1, we're just looking at it. Walk in a manner worthy. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Colossians 2.6, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, related to the idea of walking, remember I'm telling you about my, my, watching my little son Charlie learn how to walk. When you first learn how to walk, you're trying to stay walking so that you don't stumble. And that also is a part of this idea of spiritual stability through walking faithfully that the New Testament paints. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling. There's that effectual calling again and choosing you. For as long as you practice this th these things, you will never stumble. Psalm 119, verse 65. Those who love your law and have great peace, nothing causes them to stumble. So, uh, Proverbs 3, 23. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Isaiah 3.8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Hosea 14.1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Probably the most graphic, Matthew 5, Jesus takes this idea of stability versus stumbling. If your right eye makes you stumble, Matthew 5, 29, tear it out, throw it from you. For it's better for you that you lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If it makes you not walk stably, stumble. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Stumbling could have eternal consequences, salvifically. John 11.10, Jesus said, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. Then he said in John 16.1, these things I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. I'm belaboring the point on purpose. 1 Corinthians 8.13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways, but if a man is perfect in what he says, he's able to bridle the whole body as well. And I love Jude, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling 
Well, the idea is to walk, to walk faithfully, to walk securely, to walk in stability so that you don't stumble. But if you trip up when you're walking and you stumble, what's the worst that could happen? You, you fall. And the New Testament extends that metaphor as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 1 Timothy 4, 1, The Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. 2 Peter 3, 17, You therefore, brethren, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Do you see the picture I think the Holy Spirit is painting? Walk in stability. Walk worthy so that you don't stumble and ultimately fall. It's God's desire that we walk with the Lord in such a way that we do not stumble and will not fall. Now, walk in balance with what? Look at the last phrase. The calling with which you have been called. Uh, kaleo is used in both of these callings. I think it's the effectual calling. God has called you uh, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, he calls us in chapter 1 to be sons and daughters. It refers to God's sovereign call and salvation as always in Paul's epistles, 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we also pray for you that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Same idea. Also to the Thessalonians, Paul puts forth this idea of walking. Very interestingly, in 1 Thessalonians 2, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you. It's interesting because exhorting is the same Greek word, parakaleo, um, and here the New American Standard uses another Greek word to translate as imploring, but imploring is what it uses in, anyway, it's interesting. Um, but they're all there, imploring, exhorting, coming alongside you, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now it's, it's not just Christ, not the Lord. We're to walk in balance with God. Does your life, does my life reflect an obvious, deliberate, noticeable, demonstrable connection between what we say we believe and how we live? That's the question. Is our life in balance with our doctrine? Does our life shine a positive light on what we say we believe? Now that introductory thought of command of walk worthy in a manner that's consistent with your calling has to be followed up with the question, well, what does that mean and how do I do that? Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 are the answers. 
In order to illustrate this and help you understand that this is the way of God since the beginning, I want you to go back very briefly to Exodus chapter 20. Turn to Exodus 20. We've addressed this before, but I want to attach it to our passage here. This is the great chapter of the Ten Commandments, right? And the third commandment is, in my estimation, probably the most confusing of them all, the most mismanaged and misinterpreted of them all. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, I grew up hearing that that was about cussing and cursing. Don't use the Lord's name in a, in a, in a cussing phrase or something. And certainly that's, that's inappropriate. And maybe an application of what's here, but that's not the main meaning. You shall not take the name of the Lord. That word take, a better translation is carry or wear. You shall not wear the name of the Lord And then he says, in vain, or a vain way, without good reason. It's identical to saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't wear or carry the name Yahweh. Don't tell your neighbors and the nations that you belong to me, and don't act like it. That's the point. This is about lordship. Don't wear the name of the Lord in vain. Don't say you belong to God without a life that looks like it belongs to God. It grieves me to recount what happened to me when I was in the 10th grade, just just a few months, maybe two months before I was converted. I'd gone to church. I was in the youth group. Um... There's this girl, I worked at McDonald's, who worked at the fry station. She was a cute girl. So I thought I wanted to ask her out, saved up my, uh, my courage, and, and I did so. After we were closing, and I went up to her and I said, hey, I was wondering if I could take you out for some dinner, whatever you say when you're in the 10th grade. I don't remember exactly. It wasn't that eloquent, I don't think. Um, and what she said is still... It still makes me sick. She said, oh, thank you. That's gracious, Ricky, for asking me, but I, I only go out with Christians. And my answer was, well, great, because I'm a Christian. I go to the Baptist church down the road. <laughs> and she said, Rick, there's, there's really nothing about your life that would make me conclude that you're a Christian. I was carrying his name in vain. A few months later, I heard a sermon that rocked my world and changed my life. And she had a boyfriend by then. (laughs) And praise God, because Kim was in my future. Maybe the whole discussion can be boiled down to Ephesians 5.1. Look across the page. 
back in Ephesians. Here's another un, another therefore. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. How much of our lives would be pulled into central focus if we just did that? Imitated God. When writing to the Philippians, the apostle said the same thing with a different, slightly different nuance. Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy and balance of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. In the coming months, beginning the next verse, we're going to start looking at exactly what that means and pursuing that together. A few months ago, I was uh, watching my favorite college football team play a very close game that came down to the wire, came down the fourth quarter. A very intense moment came in the fourth quarter, and the referee made a controversial call that went against my team who was playing at home in front of 100,000 fans. What happened next horrified me. It was just awful. Fans began to throw debris on the field at the opposing players and coaches, at the referees, and the scene became so chaotic that the game had to be suspended for a few minutes in order to reestablish sanity and order. And I remember the feeling I had in that moment. I was so embarrassed. I was ashamed. I just wanted to go onto the television and say, we're not all like that. I, I wouldn't have done that. Not everyone in the stand did that, but these few did. These people were not representing the fan base or me personally as a fan. It was embarrassing. It was a gross misrepresentation of the majority of the fans who believe in genuine sportsmanship. But to this day, the fan base is still associated with those moments. You see the parallel? How are you wearing the reputation of the Lord? Are you walking in a manner in balance with your calling, commensurate to? corresponding to. Look, all of us know what it's like to have been a poor representation of the Lord at different moments. And praise God for grace, right? But can we renew at this juncture in Ephesians 4, can we renew our, our commitment with each other to say we want to wear the name of Christ with dignity, with obedience, with respect, with grace, with mercy, with repentance, not perfectly. But we want to walk in a manner worthy of his holy calling that he's invited us to be a loving son or daughter through adoption. I'm excited about these next three chapters and scared to death because I think the Lord is going to be getting in our kitchen pretty deeply.